Every week, we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. All right, welcome to the Wednesday Name Tags Chat Podcast. This week, we're with Scout Bassett, who is the American record holder in the 100 and the 200 meters in her classification, which is above the, above the knee amputee, 42 to 44, right? And probably aren't a lot of people out there who know that. And then also the, the, the world record holder in 400 meters. But you've also, you've run two marathons as well, mm-hmm. Paralympian in Rio, hoping to be a Paralympian in Tokyo. This is all, Tokyo's gotta be the weirdest games ever right now, but Scout, Welcome and thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Chris, for having me. I'm stoked to to be on here with you and have really admired your work and have watched many of your broadcasts. And uh, this is definitely something so exciting for me to be part of this. Well, this is so cool because we are totally ramping up and we are in such need of the games now, aren't we? After After being in quarantine for so long, like we want something that's some hope. And a couple of weeks ago, it was six months until the Paralympic Games. Yes. Do you believe that it's really happening as it hits you? Well, I certainly am training as if it's going to happen. <laughs> and, you know, I think as every week passes by and, and the months start to come off the calendar, you do start to sort of feel like it's it's approaching, right? We're sort of getting to that final destination. And yeah, I, I fully anticipate it will happen. I think it's going to be a very different experience, even from Rio. And, uh, you know, and, and not necessarily bad, but just a very different experience than what we may have thought, you know, four years ago or even two years ago, what these games were going to be like. So I think like everybody else, I'm very curious of what that experience is going to be like. Right. Because you still don't know if you'll have fans in, in the stands, uh, Correct. You, you will go through, I mean, going to the Paralympic games is protocol that you've never experienced at any other meet where there's the whole mag and bag and you have to Mm -hmm. go through the security Mm -hmm. and it can take you forever and you have to get on the bus to get to your and that probably will be considerably more will you get a chance to race before you get to tokyo well luckily there seems to be some meets that are going to happen in california at the training center, but then also there's uh, some other Paralympic regional meets like Desert Challenge and and whatnot. So I think we are going to have, and hopefully, obviously, the trials. So I think there will be opportunities to have, you know, to, to be able to race before Tokyo, but you know, of course, nothing's going to be quite like that experience in itself. Because like you said, we don't even really know all the protocols yet for, you know, dealing with COVID and then how they're, you know, wh- what exactly they're going to do to make it a safe games. Um, and, and we there have been ideas that have been floated out, but nothing that has really been communicated to the athletes of like, this is what's going to happen every day, how frequently you're going to be tested 
what kind of tracing is going to be happening. So there's just so many things that are just vague right now and uncertain. And I think that's going to be a challenge because as you said, it's already stressful enough just to go through the standard procedures, right? Of training there and, and of the rounds going, going through the rounds at the games. And then to add this other layer, I certainly think is going to be very interesting. It's going to be really interesting. Now, mentally, how do you prepare for this one? Because you're preparing for the training and your coach said that she keeps getting, she, you keep getting faster and faster. So (laughs) with the training, you kind of don't really know how fast you are, which is a cool position to be in, right? Yeah. Yeah. Better. But mentally, how are you, how are you preparing to be race ready Mm -hmm. when there are so many questions? Are you replicating that on the track or Yeah, uh, I've been thinking about that a lot. And even something as simple as doing starts, right? I think about having my opponents and I have them in my mind, you know, who they are and where they're going to be lined up. And sort of you mentally have to put yourself in that you know, position as if there is going to be a race. And, and every day with training, I think if you can come from that mindset of like, not that this is just training, but, you know, treat this, this run, the set as if this is the games, that kind of pressure, the anxiety, all of that. And, and that way, when you get to the games, it will feel like, oh, I've been here before. I've rehearsed this a million times in my mind. I don't think not having fans is going to be that big of a deal for us, at least for me or, or from a Paralympic standpoint, just because here in the U.S., so many of the races that we compete at don't already have a lot of fans. And so, you know, I've never competed at a meet on U.S. soil where there have been thousands of, of fans. So I think, um, you know, that part is going to be OK for for us. Um, but certainly, you know, we're going to have a few meets before the trials to really kind of see where we stand. You know, I've been able to watch these diamond league events or or these, um, meets here in the States. And it's been interesting to see that a lot of these athletes are just wanting to know where they stand. And that's how I feel. So it's going to be really interesting though. And I think trials will be really the closest thing we're going to get to what Tokyo will feel like. Just sort of the pomp and circumstance of a big yeah. event. Because yeah. that that changes the feeling. You get the adrenaline going. Yeah, yeah. You hear that and crowd, the, you might not hear the crowd. Go ahead. And and the pressure of at trials, like the games, yeah. it's one or two and done, right? You might get one or two rounds and that's it. And there's not going to be that, oh, I'm going to improve at the next meet, right? Trials is just like Olympic trials. It's one weekend and your performance that weekend determines whether or not you make the team. So you could have had a great season up to that point. Maybe you even broke a record, but if you go and lay an egg at trials, you're out. And that's the same thing for, for the games. You know, it doesn't matter what you did leading up to those games. It matters how you perform at that race that morning or night and that's it and so i think uh that will be good for us to have that kind of experience and and opportunity before the games but you 
you perform well in that situation, right? <laughs> you know, my coach and I were just talking about how funny this is because I tend to do better in the fight or flight mode. And I know most people don't like that. Like they hate being in that position, right? It's something they fear, they struggle with. And I love it because, and I think it's something that I embrace because having come from the situation that I did of being in an orphan and going through so many traumatic experiences while I lived in this orphanage where every day was that fight or flight, survival or not survive, that really has helped me in these situations where, you know, I embrace it. And it's, it's really a technique that I have developed and, but because I've had to, and I never thought that fight or flight mode and, and skill set that I had lived seven years within the orphanage would really pay off in some ways or benefit me, but it really has in terms of sport because uh, a lot of sport is like that, right? You get one chance, one opportunity, and that's it. And you've got to make the most of it. And uh, so I, even at practice, I really embrace that. And I try to channel that sort of mode because it really does help me to improve and to get better. Can you tell us a little bit more about sort of how you lost your leg mm -hmm. and the circumstances after that, and then how you ended up coming to the U.S. I mean, this is a this is a story. It's a, a wild uh, story, um, and even one that still to this day I sometimes look back and it's just I'm I'm amazed by how it's all come together, and so. I was born in Nanjing, China. That's where my story begins. And when I was an infant, I was involved in a fire. Uh, they, they believe it was a chemical fire and where I suffered severe burns on both legs, but one leg much worse than the other. And after that incident happened, I was left on the street of Nanjing. Just abandoned. Abandoned, right, with burns below the waist down. And found at a year and a half old, taken to the local government orphanage. And I lived there uh, up until I was seven years old. And that experience, I would say, is, is by far the most harrowing, traumatic, just heartbreaking experience. There are things that sometimes happen to people that really break you as a human being, and that's not always a bad thing. Um, but uh, if you are, you know, um, in a position like that, it can be hard to come back from that. And I just remember as a young girl, the devastation, the despair, the loneliness, the isolation I experienced in living seven years in this environment. And um, it really, it, it was an experience that broke me as a young girl and took me years later to, to come back from and to heal from and, and find wholeness. But uh, I was really lucky, fortunate, blessed, however you want to say it, to be adopted at age seven and brought to the States. And I came to America not speaking a word of English. I weighed 22 pounds. And oh, by the way, I am adopted into a family and into a, a community of 1,600 people, predominantly Caucasian. I could count on one hand 
the number of uh, people, the, the number of minorities that lived in this small town. And, you know, you're dealing with cultural issues, misunderstandings, physical issues. And as you can imagine, just for a young person, a lot to have to navigate and, and work through. Yeah. And, and obviously also just coming from the orphanage yes. where you weren't allowed outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You were effectively forced labor. Yes. Yeah. While you were there. It sounds like it sounds like potentially there was some, you know, abuse. Abuse, yeah, absolutely. Physical, mental, yeah. emotional. And, yeah. And so when you came to the States, I, I read something that said that you didn't even know that you were coming to the States. Right. <laughs> and ended up there. How how did like how did your young mind wrap it wrap your mind around? Because it's almost like two separate worlds, right? Yes. And I, I, when I tell people or try to describe this experience, it's hard to even put into words because there really is no metaphor or analogy for something. It's an out-of-body experience to go from living a life that is so dark and heartbreaking and, and trying in every sense to coming here. Right. And I I can remember the feeling of being, I I tried to tell people, imagine morning, noon, and night, every day of your life. When you first come here for the first six months to a year, you have the most awful feeling in your stomach, like of just wanting to vomit, of being nauseous and sick and some of it was physical but some of it's just the anxiety right of the situation of having to adapt to all these new things and you're right when I lived in that orphanage I never left the premises of that place we didn't have access to outside media books television music radio nothing and so I grew up in that situation thinking this was normal like this, this was like everybody's life. All you'd ever known, right? It was all I had ever known. And then when you're stripped out of that and you are going to a place, you, I'm getting on a train, a plane, food, seeing things that I don't even know how to conceptualize because I have never seen them. And imagine, okay, then you have parents that don't speak English or that don't speak Chinese and I don't speak English. And so just uh, this, yeah, very difficult process process for, for months. And, and the feeling of like, just, I, I, like many people having so many nightmares, right? You can't sleep because you have nightmares of your experiences and dealing with in many ways, PTSD from that. And so uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's hard to even put into words, but um, I'm so lucky that I had great parents and um, just the love and support of so many people around me. And, and also, I think very blessed that I just had that indomitable will of like, I'm going to keep going, I'm going to make it another day. And I think that mindset of the orphanage really helped me to survive and and to get past the initial shock um, of of coming to America. 
was it just in the orphanage? Was it you you were the only one or you the only person you could rely on was you yourself? Yeah. And actually this uh I had a really interesting experience because there was one boy who was albino in the five to ten year old room that I lived in. And he was the only other person that I remember that was different, right? And and then obviously myself having missing my leg. And everybody else looked and seemed, you know, fairly normal to me. And so that was a hard thing to relate to also because, and I felt very alone in that sense. But I do remember there was a girl who was a little bit older than me and maybe two, three years. And she was sort of like my angel in in this orphanage because she really looked after me. She had all her limbs and she was not physically disabled. And uh, she really took care of me and helped me to get around before I had a prosthetic there. And, and, um, you know, just, she was my companion. And then I remember the day that she was gone being absolutely devastated because they didn't tell us what happened, where she went. I didn't even know what adoption was. So I don't know if she got adopted, but I also know she was a little bit older than me. And at that time, at 10 years old, they forced you out of the orphanage. And so now that I can piece it together, maybe she was at the age where she could no longer stay there and and she they forced her out. I don't know, but um, that was devastating for me. And I remember crying tears for days and weeks on end because in many ways she was like my caretaker and I shared a bed with her and then just heart, she was gone. And, and again, no communication. They don't tell you what happened. And uh, it's something I think still to this day, I think every now and then wondering, I hope she's okay. I hope she's made it. And, and obviously best case scenario, I hope she's been adopted into a great family, but you know, those are the things that you never forget when you're an orphan, those experiences, because those are, that is the, your only family. And um, yeah, I hold those memories like very dear to me. Yeah. And the thing is, at such a young age, you had to deal with this kind of trauma. And yes. then you were thrown into a world that was just completely overwhelming. Mm-hmm. Where you didn't know the language, you didn't know the culture. You didn't and and language i guess sort of literally and figuratively right i mean yes. it's, it's just such an incomprehensible world with this this podcast has come out of our school program our name tags educational program and we have what we call our our four s's of resilience mm. and the second one is about the situation and the question is is the situation overwhelming or is it a challenge Mm-hmm. And, and I would imagine in the beginning, it was entirely overwhelming. Yes. Were you able to, to navigate and, and create a challenge in it to, to make it a challenge? Uh, I think initially, maybe not so much so because you're just trying to survive, right? It's like sensory overload to the max and you're just trying to make it from morning, afternoon to night, right? And initially it was just about survival. And then 
the more settled I got, the more I realized how different I was and, and sort of these experiences of being marginalized and, and uh, excluded and things relating to my disability were very apparent to me. And that's, I think, when the challenge aspect started because I realized very quickly with just the the treatment in sports or at school that I received that I was going to walk a very challenging path in life and this was not going to be easy. And that's kind of when I started to shift from survival mode to like, okay, this is a great challenge. How am I going to rise above this? How? And it was a little bit of having, you know, a chip on the block of um, wanting to prove to my classmates and teachers and coaches that I was capable, that I did belong, that I had something valuable to offer. And even though that, even though they did not see that. And, and so that's really why I focused a lot on like just being the best and continuing to improve and practice, you know, practice would be done and I'd still be there or I'd go home and I'd practice kicking a soccer ball or practice shooting and, you know, whatever the sport or, or thing was um, school, it was a little bit more difficult to do that because I'm still learning the language. And so initially, obviously, I'm not a great student. And um, but as I got to be a better student, that was the challenge of the spelling bee, right? It's like, how cool would it be if somebody who doesn't speak English is, you know, an immigrant who came here could win the school spelling bee. And, you know, and also I just knew that it would make the other kids just so mad, right? Like, how does this girl where English is her second language and she beats all of us? And uh, so, yeah, I just, alphabet and everything. Exactly, I mean, not, even- not even using the alphabet, right? And yeah. so, those are just kind of the, the, you know, then it became, yes, you're right. Like, and just, I think that's part of how my competitive nature was born too. Was like, if I don't show that I belong, that I'm good enough, that I have a talent, a skill, I'm, I'm not going to continue to progress. I'm not going to get opportunities. And so, and, and really just wanting to fit in, right? Like if I'm not, and maybe a little bit of that is just my Asian uh, background of like wanting to be, you know, the best and to, to be, um, you know, uh, a minus is not good enough. <laughs> it's a, a plus only. And so just that drive, you know, um, I think was something that really suited me well. Wow. So what was the responsibility like for you? Because, I mean, that's a lot of responsibility, right? I mean, like, I have to be the best. I have to keep working. I have to be the best in order to be considered equal. Yeah. Or in order to be a peer. Yeah. Was that a lot of responsibility for you? Yeah. And I think it relates a lot to the, the times that we're in now. And what I mean by that is when you're an outsider, whether it's because of race, your appearance, the disability, whatever that might be. For me, I've always seen it as, yes, it is a heavy weight to care, to carry, but also an opportunity because 
I have to show that I am capable, that I belong, that I can be, um, you know, in a room full with the very best or, or on the track with the very best. And it's almost like if I don't step up and I'm not at that level, the thing is that I'm not going to get those opportunities to push, to push boundaries, to break down barriers because a part, a woman, um, a minority being, having a disability, there's so many boxes that I check. Right. But the issue with that is that, you know, somebody that isn't like me may get many opportunities, Chris, like to, you know, sit at the, at the top of a meeting or, or um, at a company or to get sponsorships or marketing or, or media exposure. But somebody like me is not going to get as many of those opportunities traditionally. So when I do, I have to make the most of it. And I have to set myself up to be prepared for that so that when I get an opportunity, it's not, oh, Scout, the Asian, the disability, the, the girl with the disability, she wasn't very impressive. And, you know, I, I, weigh, I, I carry that heavy because I don't want somebody to think that of me and then not give somebody else an opportunity, right? So you're and representing so, yourself and you're representing other people. And I think also I would exactly. imagine that one, you're proving to other people, but are you proving to yourself as well? Absolutely. You know, it, it does start with here, right? This internal motivation. Because I think that whenever, you know, you probably know this covering sports, whenever you're solely motivated by revenge or vengeance or like a bitter, a place of bitterness, that can only take you so far. Uh, and it might be a starting point, but it can't be something, it can't be the motivation that sustains you. And so for me, I take those things into account, you know, maybe the thoughts or the criticism or, or what perceptions people have, but really the motivation is how can I continue to make myself better? How can I prove to myself that despite all these things that the world might look as hurdles or difficulties, that the, the very things that can take me to places I could have only dreamed of. And, and really, that's how I'm, I'm always trying to see it and improve. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, so did the vengeance part actually get you to win the spelling bee? I think so. I think so at you least actually for won the, the spelling bee for the first year and then the second and third year it became about like okay i want to make it to districts and i wanted to make it to states and then oh i'd want to make it to washington dc but the first year it definitely was like yeah i really want to show these kids that you know and just kind of do a, a stick it to them thing right and mostly just because it was it was a hard experience you know i went to a really small school and we're talking like 12 kids in the grade and so small that you know when you were like the only one that wasn't invited to the birthday party on the weekend or or things like that right and um I think that was a big part of my motivation too was oh if I can just show them I'm good at something maybe they'll accept me right maybe they'll think oh she is smart she is cool she is you know not that winning the spelling bee really I don't think that made me any cooler or more likable to be honest 
I was like, that's a very nerdy thing, right? But, um, you know, just wanting to get some credibility in some way. Right. But then now that you've gone on this journey where you're trying to be the best in the world at what you're doing, mm -hmm. the motivation has to be different. The motivation has to be to grow as yes. an individual. How did the sport start? How did, how did you, cause you said you did, you know, some soccer, some basketball, yeah. the running really became the thing. When did yeah. that happen? So I started running when I was 14 years old through a, when I received a grant from the Challenge Athletes Foundation for a running prosthetic. And up until this point, I had always done sports on my everyday walking prosthetic. And I don't, it's kind of difficult to describe for people that aren't amputees, but it would be like doing your job or a sport on like training wheels, right? And then trying to do it at a higher level and you just don't have the equipment to be able to ride a two-wheel bike. So, you know, here everybody else is already onto the two-wheel bike and you only have the training wheels. And so that's kind of what it was, doing sports on something that just wasn't made to do sports, right? Wasn't made to get to that level. And then um, at this point when growing up, you know, prosthetic technology wasn't quite there. They, that, that concept of microprocessor feet and knees were not a thing. <laughs> Everything was mechanical and sports feet really had just entered the scene when I was in high school, but uh, I didn't know about it until I found CAF. I didn't even know sports prosthetics were a thing or sports feet. And so, um, my prosthetist had told me about applying for a grant from CAF for a running blade. I'm like, a what? Like I hadn't even seen a photo. I'd never seen anybody on a running blade. And so he showed me, and I remember initially thinking like, how are you supposed to run on that? Cause it's this kind of C or at that time, it, like an L shaped carbon blade. And it was hard to just wrap my mind around it. And um, anyway, so I received a grant from CIF and that's how I got my first, uh, you know, running like, and I say that, you know, having, I was always athletic because I always did sports every season of every year and I enjoyed sports, but I just really hadn't found something I was a good at and B that wasn't so difficult to do sports on my everyday walking like was so hard it didn't almost to the point where it wasn't really enjoyable but I just loved moving I loved being outdoors I loved being a part of something and that's why I continue to sign up but when I got the running leg it was like I felt free and unlimited and like all the chains that had held me down as a young girl were just gone and um yeah I, the rest is in history, but that's how the saying goes, right? <laughs> that's, that was the start, definitely. Can you describe what you need from a prosthetic leg? Mm -hmm. What does your prosthetic leg have to do for you to, make, to allow you to run and run fast? Well, there's a couple of things when it comes to, we'll just say for a, a running leg, because there's other 
um, sports prosthetics for cycling and, and, and other events. But what for our purpose, we'll just talk about the running leg. So you need the socket, which is the upper part of, of the leg. And that holds your residual limb. Now, without a good fitting socket, something that's comfortable, that's durable, that uh, you can withstand the pounding on your residual limb in, you don't have a leg. And so that's really is the most important part is to have a really good fitting socket and then it's the lower part is the technology, right? So that's a knee, maybe you run with a knee or a blade, and all of that has to be dialed in and work in unison with the socket. So you could have a great fitting socket, but maybe you're on not on the right blade or using the right knee. And it's like you have a Ferrari, but you can't drive it. And so um, that is part of the process. But what people don't understand is that sports prosthetics are not covered by regular insurance companies, not covered by insurance companies really at all. And they're extremely costly. We're looking at basically the cost of a car, like a brand new um, car. We're not talking high end here, but just, <laughs> but just a regular, you know, car. Very nice car. Yeah. Yeah. And um very costly. And the process can be very difficult. I, I kind of laugh and, and sometimes I get a little frustrated because I see people that like will order a pair of spikes or running shoes, you know, from Nike or, or go to the sporting goods store and you get an outfit and 150 or $200 later, you're out the door with a full complete set. It's not that way when it comes to prosthetics, right? It's a very laborious process. It requires a lot of fittings, a lot of adjustments. And even when you do get that down, it can take a long while before you're comfortable doing it, you know, before you're comfortable running. And that was the case for me. I hated it at first. It felt it was hard because my limb was not just used to that pounding on the ground. And, um, you go through, you know, muscles that have never worked before or fired to, to run are suddenly being utilized. And it's like this, I'm sore all the time, every day, you know, and then your body adjusts. And I think that's like the beauty of doing a Paralympic sport or, or being active with a disability is that it really is amazing to see how your human body adjusts and what it's capable of doing. If you're willing to go through that initial pain, yes. Yes. because yeah, I mean, you're talking about like the socket where, where you have your stump, yeah. where you lost your leg and that has to fit as seamlessly as possible, right? This socket, yeah. but then you can attach yeah. the running leg. Do you use a knee or do you not use a knee? This is a great question because I'm here uh, in Orlando seeing my prosthetist and he gets comments all the time from engineers uh, that, that make the, the prosthetics or manufacturers, right? To other athletes, Scout should run with the knee. Scout should run with the knee. Everybody else runs with the knee. Why doesn't she run with the knee? And I get it all the time. Like, oh, you'd be so much better. And the thing is, is what you have to take into account is that even within Paralympics and within the same disability, no two people are necessarily similar. No 
two amputations are exactly alike. You know, for me, I'm an above the knee amputee, but I also have to deal with nerve issues. I have to deal with scar tissue issues. I have to deal with skin graft issues because I was burned. And so that presents its own challenges than just having a clean cut amputation, right? And so, um, but also I'm quite petite. I'm only four nine, <laughs> and so quite short, especially for a sprinter. And because of that, I don't have a lot of room underneath my residual limb for both a knee and a blade. But I will tell you, Chris, um, twenty. 19 2020 we did try a knee and a blade a running knee and a blade and we gave it a good shot and just with the weight issue being so small the knee adds a significant amount of weight for somebody of my size and because you're 86 pounds did i read that correctly are you still 86 pounds you know you're not supposed to to ever ask a woman that <laughs> bio though the team usa is oh gosh uh yes that is, that is true around there i suppose it depends around there. I, I i suppose it depends on what kind of day it's been right um <laughs> but yes i am well under 100 pounds and so you know the weight issue of of the prosthetic is huge where on somebody, you know, um, Desmond Jackson, for instance, my teammate, that also goes the same processes, you know, that extra two, three, four pounds on his leg with the knee and the adapters is nothing for him because he's much taller, he's got more size over. And so that's, um, so no, I don't run with a knee. I, you probably have seen it on video, but it's basically circumducting. And it is very untraditional for a single leg amputee. Meaning that your your foot comes out around yeah. on each one, and this is a yeah. this is a carbon fiber, effectively like a leaf spring, basically, yes. right? So yeah, so yeah, like a a whipping fiber. when you whipping the leg, yeah, around. And then you compress that yep. when you when you step onto it mm -hmm. and get some some return forward. Off. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, so it, it's very, it, it, it's funny because aesthetically, it doesn't look pretty, like it doesn't look like the normal mo running motion. And when we tried running with the knee, I'm telling you, I looked beautiful as a runner, right? Perfect form, like as, that looked natural. It was great. Like I looked so good doing it with the knee. But the problem is it just wasn't fast for me. I couldn't overpower that knee because I didn't have enough mass and size on top of the knee to overpower. And that really makes for the best sprinters that run with the knee. And so it just, you know, numbers don't lie. And when we, after two years, when we compared it, I was like, this isn't working. We've got to go back to what was and where I had success. So this year, towards the end of last year this year we've gone back to running without a knee and um i'm so excited because uh some good things are going to definitely be happening this season so you right now are in orlando yes getting a new leg built mm -hmm. and, and a new running leg right new running leg new walking leg new everything i feel like a new person <laughs> how many legs do you have 
Um, well, here we're just going to work on uh, three. So we'll have the walking leg, we'll have the running, sprinting leg, and then we're going to have also a long jump leg. Okay. And now you jump when you do long jump, because you do 100 meters, 200 meters, 400 meters. And with the long jump, do you jump off of the prosthetic leg or do you yes. jump off of, you do? Yeah. And not only, I mean, there's a reason why every Paralympian that is a lower leg amputee, you know, jumps off the blade. But also for me, even if I had the choice, I wouldn't jump off my sound side because I also have severe burns on that side. Uh, underneath the foot and skin grafts and, and nerve and tissue issues. So the idea of planning from that and taking off of a, a board on that side, we tried it, it just hurt too much. So it was actually better in some ways. It was like, thank goodness we, we have a prosthetic on the other side as an option um, because it really took, you know, all of that pain away. Wow. Okay. And so why do you jump or why does everyone jump off of their prosthetic leg? Oh, I hope you're not setting me up here, Chris. No, <laughs> no I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Right. Cause part of this is yes. like, we heard the story with, with Oscar when Oscar, yeah. was, uh, when he was trying to race in the Olympics, right. With yeah. two yeah. prosthetic legs mm -hmm. and then looking at the long jump and seeing yeah. somebody jump off of, off of their prosthetic leg. Yeah. It makes me wonder how, you know, why, why you would do that, why you're getting that return, because the story from Oscar was that you get less return from yeah. a prosthetic leg than you would from an able-bodied leg. Yes. Well, I'm going to say I am not a, um, I'm not an engineer. I'm not a, a biomechanist of, of any sort, but what I will say is that in long jump, you want that foot. Let's just take an anatomical foot, right? The best long jump position and the best long jumpers are the ones who can almost have a stiff foot, stiff leg at the board. Mm -hmm. And that's those are the ones that get the, the farthest jumps, right? When you can almost just get that stiff ankle, stiff foot, and that's all meeting at the board and you're taking off. And the prosthetic blade pretty much provides that, right? Because it's a rigid, hard surface meeting another rigid, hard surface of the board. And so the bounce, in addition to the compression of the blade, is what helps to propel you into the air, not only forward, but giving you height from the blade, from when that blade compresses. Because once that blade compresses, when you've hit the toe and you've compressed it, what does it have to do? It has to rebound. It has to spring back. And the springing back is part of what gives you the height. Now, obviously, the angle that you tack the board at the toe is going to determine whether you go forward or you're going just straight up. But, um, you know, uh, definitely you get, in my opinion, I, I do believe you did, do get more return from the blade by taking off of, of a long jump board with the blade. I don't think it's that same effect on the track because the track is a synthetic softer surface as opposed to a board. But also, as you know, 
it can vary depending on are you a single leg amputee? Are you a double leg amputee? So there, there's a lot of factors that go into that conversation. There are definitely a lot of factors that go into answering that. And I had asked uh, Ezra Freck about that yes. as well, who's a, yes. a high jumper and yeah. a long jumper. And high jumping, he jumps off of his, his sound, sound yes. to yeah. go higher. Mm-hmm. And he was saying that the trajectory off of his prosthetic leg is, is what helps him to go further in the long jump. Right, so right. one's going high, the other's going going long, which is the objective. Right, because so. long jump is like a parabola. You know, you kind of want to be a parabola when you take off from the board, not only getting the height, but also the distance. So you've also, it's interesting. I think at one point you had said that you're never going to be ashamed of your story. Yeah. What, what do you, what do you mean by that? And how has that empowered you moving forward? Well, I say that because growing up and for such a long time, even in, you know, my early um, years after college, I would say I did feel embarrassed and I did feel shame, not only to be an amputee and, and a woman with a prosthetic, but also just of my story, because it's a story that is hard to tell. It's hard to talk about. It's hard to really express the pain, the loss, the brokenness that I went through. And also, I know a lot of people when they hear my story, they have the reaction of like, I can't believe that that's what happened, right? Because here in America, we can, we don't even have orphanages here, right? We have the closest things like foster care. And so that concept for, for so many people is very foreign, but, um, you know, ashamed of even, I felt a little, a little bit shame of like where I'd come from, you know, of that, I had this experience in China and for a long time, I had a hard time embracing that part of my identity of being Chinese, of being Asian, because I attributed that to only the worst things because that's what happened in my homeland. And it wasn't until into more my adult years was I able to have a different perspective, even going back to the orphanage. Was I able to change how I felt about that experience and also how I saw myself because I was able to realize having been able to take many trips back to my homeland that my experiences was an exception. It was not um, most people's experiences in China and that, you know, kids there don't grow up necessarily the same way that I did and that this was a very unique circumstance. And so it's taken me a while, but I'm so proud that even in the last five years have done so much work to really embrace and to appreciate and to celebrate my identity of being Chinese, of being Asian, and just taking pride in that and ownership in that. Has that been difficult right now during COVID? Have you seen more backlash mm. being, being a Chinese American? Absolutely. I've had even some of my own experiences where you'll be somewhere in public. And I mean, 
I have this sort of hypersensitivity when I'm out in public because I know that people can see that I'm Asian. And one of the things that happens to me all the time is when I run, I get very congested. That's just part of, it's always been that way. A little tickle in the throat, a little, you know, nasal congestion, maybe even a little cough. And if I'm in public, even when I'm wearing my mask, I like try to hold it in and I look around to see if there's anybody around because I know the minute that I do a, <clears throat> you know, or a little cough or something, people are going to look at me and be like, oh, of course it's her. She's Asian, you know, and you get those looks. But even at the supermarket, um, this was at the beginning of COVID last year. I had a tickle in my throat that I couldn't suppress. I was getting groceries and this woman saw me and she just had a million questions. Are you Asian? Are you from Wuhan? You look like you're Chinese. We wouldn't be in this. And, you know, she told me that her, unfortunately, their family business had to shut down and they've lost so much money. And I felt horrible, you know, like, obviously, I, I don't want that for anybody. But, you know, this is affecting her business and her family. And, and we wouldn't be here if if it wasn't for your people. And that was how she phrased it. And I just didn't even know what to think. Here I am feeling such empathy for her, but also what you're saying is not right. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and so we've, you know, my sister is also Chinese and she is a, was a waitress and had many people that asked, Oh, what, what is your ethnicity? Or um, most commonly it's, where are you from? Where are you from? And we're like, what do you mean? Right? Because uh, are you asking about my ethnicity or where I grew up here in the States? And then it becomes- You say Northern Michigan? Exactly. And they're like, no, no. I mean, like, where are you from from? And I'm like, oh, you mean like, what is my ethnicity? And of course, if you say Chinese, oh, are you from Wuhan? Like suddenly that's the only place people know in China. And um, anyways, it's, uh, I've been just devastated seeing the recent just, I mean, it's not recent, it's been happening um, since the beginning of COVID, but in more recent, recently, it's been highlighted, the violence, the hate crimes that have happened to Asian Americans all over this country. And I can't tell you, Chris, how many people like I shared these stories, what was happening on my story, Instagram story, and how many people responded saying they had no idea that this was happening. And, and, you know, unless you follow Asian American news, which I do, you probably wouldn't know because this wasn't on, you know, mainstream media networks. They weren't talking about it like they talk about other groups that have been targeted or racially profiled or, or whatnot. And that to me also showed that we, we have a bit of an issue here in this country too, because these things are happening to Asian Americans and no one was really talking about it. And luckily, you know, news outlets and media, more mainstream ones are covering it, but um, yeah, it's been devastating and just, um, just horrible and and hard. and I'm trying to do as much as I can to use my platform to speak out about it because certainly is not right.
you seem so happy and <laughs> so strong. I mean, granted, given given your story, right? I mean, mm -hmm. we've we've seen this was this was a difficult story at the beginning, yeah. a difficult story in the orphanage, mm -hmm. getting re getting acquainted within within the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, but but are you are you as strong and and as happy? And, <laughs> is is this a battle for you, or is it something that comes naturally? Yes and no, to answer your question. I am generally a very positive, um, happy, optimistic person. That really is sort of my natural MO, so to speak. But that's not to say that I haven't gone through some really dark seasons or times in my life because I have, even well into my adult years, um, most notably after Rio, I went through this year-long post-Paralympic blues that I know many athletes have talked about where I just really mentally struggled from the disappointment. And then also, where do I go from here? What do I do? And at that time, you know, I didn't have a lot of sponsors or support. So even financially figuring out, okay, how do I sustain myself for another four years? And that, that was presented its own stress and pressures. But then the other trigger for me was going back to my orphanage. So five days after Rio, I went back to the orphanage that I grew up in and it was still there. And I didn't, I don't think anything can prepare you for an experience like that, but I did not realize until the weeks and months after that trip that I had to really, it was like a bandaid being ripped off and you're sort of going through that trauma all over again, right? Something you had suppressed for so long and kept down and like not talked about. And then, okay, you have this experience and all those wounds are happening all over again. And I went through a two-year process of having to really get counseling and therapy and um, some real help to, to process that and, and to really get healing. Because for so long, I think in life, we don't always realize how we can be stuck at a place of pain, of loss, of trauma. And maybe even subconsciously or unconsciously, we've been parked there. And for me, I didn't realize that until I had gone back to my orphanage and, oh boy, had to do a lot of work and just a lot of emotions to work through, a lot of wounds, a lot of just trauma and to really see like how that experience as a young girl has affected me now, you know, as an adult and the choices and, and um, relationships and, and whatever it might be, my fears, my, my insecurities and having to work through that was uh, quite an ordeal. And, I, you know, going through a lot of depression in that process. That must be harder than any of the training that you ever had to do. You probably also were an example for the people at the orphanage. I mean, an example of hope, I would imagine as well. I hope so. Um, you know, of course, they're so proud because they have seen what I have done since. But 
you know, for me, I hope that more importantly, the message of hope was sent to the children because that was the most heartbreaking part for me of going back was seeing that some of these children may not ever make it beyond this chapter of their lives, right? They're not all likely going to be chosen. And of course, now that orphanage, it wasn't this case when I lived there, but now orphanages in China, over 90% of the children that live in these orphanages are there because they have a mental or physical disability. Whereas when I lived there, it was mostly because the orphanages were just flooded with girls because China had the one child policy and, and whatnot. And so it didn't matter if you were, had a disability or not, if you were a girl and you were the second child or you were, you know, a first child and it was a girl, a lot of the orphanages existed because of that one child policy in China. And now they exist because disability is so taboo and is so shameful and so hidden in their culture and not to be talked about. And that was devastating because in a culture that doesn't even see these children as human beings, as worthy, as valuable, how are they going to be adopted? You know, or all of them, right? And so you sort of realize um, this, this, weird and and also very difficult, I guess, dichotomy. And, um, but for me, I just wanted to give as much love and hope and encouragement to these kids of that mindset of just every day, continue to push forward everything you have, put one foot in front of the other and, and push forward. And, um, it is a bit strange because we talk about hope and, and I think that's what carried me and has carried me to this day. But um, I know one of the things that I wanted to do. So I brought basketballs and soccer balls and jump ropes. And um, it was so, so cool in, in partnership with Nike, we could bring sports equipment to the orphanage. And like me, these kids looked at that and they had no idea what it was. They didn't know what to do with it because they never have gotten to play sports in the orphanage. And so here I am showing them how to dribble a basketball and kick a soccer. And you should just see the like, what is this, right? Look on their face. And of course they start doing it and just the joy that it brought out. But the other thing I really wanted to do was tell these children that they are loved because nobody ever told me that in the orphanage, that I was worthy, that I am valuable, that I am loved, that I'm cared for. That was something that nobody ever told me or ever showed or explained to me. And that to me was the most powerful and profound part of that, of that trip. Which is part of, it sounds like why your role with the Challenge Athletes Foundation, it, it sounds like the one that you really enjoy is, is being a mentor as well. Yeah, 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 I do. And I love that role because growing up, there weren't, we didn't have necessarily like heroes of Paralympic sport on mainstream television or, or media, or you didn't see ads with a Paralympic athlete 
at least not for me growing up. And, um, you know, didn't have a lot of people to identify with that looked like me. And part of why I do what I do now is I want to show in particular these young girls that anything you've ever dreamed of, you can achieve um, no matter where you come from or what you look like or what your story is. And, you know, it's not up to me to decide if I'm a role model or, or, or an example or whatnot, but if I can help these girls, you know, pave a path and, and give them the school, the tools and skills to, you know, navigate this world, um, I'm happy to do so and, and love just cherish of all the things I get to do in my life. I think being a mentor to these girls is really my favorite thing. It's got to be an interesting dynamic, right? Because, Excuse me. Because you grew up craving that probably, and you and maybe yeah. you did get, and you probably got some of that when you moved to the U.S. But but initially looking for looking to be loved, looking to be valued. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's great that you can that you can return that. You were given a name when you came to the US. Mm-hmm. Where does your name Scout come from? Well, that's a great question. Uh, if you were in middle school or high school, depending on where you went, you've probably read the book, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. It's sort of a, a staple in, in um, American uh, uh, high school, English, I, I believe, English class. And the main character, her name is Jean Finch, but her nickname is Scout. And that was my mom's favorite book and movie. And I think, you know, she just felt like I had a, like her personality. And also I had a very similar bowl cut hair like she did when I came here. And I was a bit of a tomboy, you know, like like scout in the book and the movie and so that's where um they came up with a name and as a when I was younger I hated it because I was like oh are you named after a girl scout or or um uh, Demi uh, Moore has a daughter named scout did your parents name you after Demi Moore's daughter? I'm like who is she I had no idea you know Anyways, but um, now I've come to really appreciate it as I've gotten older and, and that it's different and unique. And it's so interesting how, like, I don't know if it's, if it's serendipity or what, but I really have so many attributes and qualities that Scout in To Kill a Mockingbird has. And it's just amazing how even before I ever read that book, I was so similar to her and just so tenacious and had a curiosity for the world and a wonderment that was really unmatched and um, uh, a passion for, for, for fairness and equality and justice. And um, it's really interesting how all of that has really just fit to a T. <laughs> that is an interesting one, isn't it? Did you grow into the name? Was the name a mark of who you who you were at the time and right right I don't know um I feel like I've always been that way and and maybe you know um but probably some elements have 
you know, I've grown into, but uh, I think a lot of those were just sort of innately born and, and maybe part developed because of the orphanage and, and growing up here in the States, the things that I had to do to kind of, you know, make it. And so that's probably where it started. That's interesting. It's great. I mean, what an amazing character. When you said that you'd never be ashamed of your story, you did something that fully demonstrated that to me. When you did ESPN, the body, <laughs> ESPN, yeah. the magazine's body issue, mm-hmm. there, there was nowhere to hide. I mean, can you describe yeah. what exactly the body issue is? Mm-hmm. And I guess what it felt like for you to be in that position? Well, for those that don't know, ESPN annually comes out with what they call the body issue. And it celebrates many of the top athletes in the world in all their full glory (laughs) without clothing. And it really is to celebrate and honor the physical attributes that these athletes have to be an athlete, right? The strength, the, the, um, you know, the, the beauty, the definition, um, to, to be an athlete. And, uh, so when I first got that offer, (laughs) when they first approached us, I was like, Oh, hell no. (laughs) It was just like that too. Um, Not interested. No, thank you. And then my agent actually, you know, called me and she said, you know, I just want you to think more about this. I know you like, I think I replied like within 30 seconds of her email. Right. And uh, one word reply. Yeah. Yeah. No, hell no. Um, and, and so she, she's called me. She said, you know, I, I just want you to take some more time to think about this. Talk to some people that you know, are important in your life and and mean a lot to you and just run this by them. But she, you know, she really challenged me. She said, I know you don't want to do this for you because this isn't something that you would say yes to. But she said, I want you to think of if you did this, what this could mean or how it could help or impact other women in particular with disabilities. And when she kind of phrased it that way, and, and I thought about it, I had a very different answer and obviously, but also a very different perspective because across the globe, society has told people with disabilities to hide, to be ashamed, to cover up. And in particular, women with disabilities as their, the, the disability is their deficiency. It's not the bodily version of perfection that we see in beauty ads or, or, or magazines and on television and, and whatnot in a, a culture that really places a lot of emphasis on physical beauty and attraction and what that looks like. And I just thought we've got to change that narrative that a woman with a disability she's not any less beautiful, attractive, powerful, strong as somebody who doesn't. And obviously my disability is very visible and it's a very obvious 
imperfection. I would say that in quotes. Um, but it's been a journey for me to accept that too, and to see the beauty and the strength, and and all of that. Missing leg, and it's the scars as well, right? Absolutely, and that was. Thank you for bringing that up because that was the other thing too. Is that I have burns, severe burns from my waist down, and that was something I have not shown. You know, not even in any. It was it was like one thing to show my leg. There's no problem with that. I've done that, but to show the parts of my body that I've had a hard time of accepting with the burns and the skin grafts and the discoloring because of it was really hard. And um, I was something that I, I wasn't sure if I really wanted to put out there. But you know, I'm so glad I said yes, because there hasn't been a single day that's gone by since then that I regretted doing that. It was so tastefully done. The photographer, I had gotten to talk to him before. And he really asked, what do you want to convey in these photos? If you could tell your story, what do you want these photos to capture? And I said, I want them to show strength, such strength, but also beauty and that there's no shame. And I'm really happy with how it turned out. I feel like it really conveyed all the things that were important to me. Was it a liberating experience when, because you were out in the desert yeah, and, yeah. and it's like, I mean, I can't, so it's like, all right, scouts, so cameras going, we've got the lights, we've got all the people, uh, take your clothes off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's going through your mind there? Well, uh, I can tell you that the first bit, I felt very self-conscious, right? Because yeah. it's like such a weird thing, especially if, you know, I'm not somebody that just you know, even for the thirst trap game of Instagram, I don't do a lot of those kind of content. And for me to like, you know, just do that was so, yeah, that was a really big hurdle. But um, the one of the things that really helped me was that everybody on the set and crew that worked on that shoot had done many issues of, and shoots of the body issue. Mm -hmm. So nobody was like, oh my God, gosh, she really is naked. You know, like nobody was like, this was the first time. And they were like, oh, it's really happening. It was like, oh, we've except done this you, I would this. imagine. Exactly. Except for me. No. Exactly. <laughs> and um, yeah, but of course it's funny because people are like, if you, one of the more common questions is, were you really naked doing that? I'm like, yes. Like there's no it's not like they photoshopped off any clothes or anything like that really was. But I said, you know, in between the shots, um, they, you know, you do have a robe on. So it's not like you're just out there the whole time, completely naked. Uh, but it, that was another out of body experience. And yes, liberating in some way, especially after it came out, like just to A, have been able to tell that story and B, to have it out there. That was really the most liberating part, I would say. So to the next generation, because I mean, you've, when I mean, you're just 30, right? I mean, you, you've lived mm -hmm. multiple lifetimes already by the time you're 30. It's just amazing to see what you've done. What would be the message that you give or that you would give, but you probably already do give to those following in your footsteps? 
Well, uh, I'm a couple years older than 30, but I really appreciate uh, you saying that because that makes me feel so wonderful. Well, I already uh, told you wait, so I had to do what uh, I could. Oh, I know. You know? <laughs> Should we just provide credit card numbers, social security at this point? Um, the message that I would send is that whatever you do in life, whatever passion, whatever path you pursue do it with all your heart and all your courage and all your strength because you know you don't have to be a Paralympic athlete you don't have to be on tv but whatever you are doing whether it's in your community whether it's with your family or your home life do it with all your heart all your courage and all your strength because I think if you do those things do it with those things and from that place you're limitless in what you can achieve, what you can become, the growth that you can experience in your life. And I always try to operate from that kind of place is whatever I'm doing to be all in and whatever obstacles may come, um, whatever trials and hurdles you face to not let them stop you, to continue to push forward. I think of oftentimes the best things that have come in my life have come after the darkest places and spaces. And that's what I want to remind people is oftentimes when you are at those darkest of tunnels in your life or seasons, on the other side of that is greatness, is something amazing, is something life-changing. And I think where people fail to reach that place is they get so hung up on the struggle and that's when they quit. They want to give up. And I just want to say that if you're willing to push through and you are willing to go through the darkest of darkest, there will be a reward on the other side of that. Ah, what a great message. These, the kids who get a chance to work with you, are really very lucky. So we will be rooting for you on the road to Tokyo and then hopefully at Tokyo as well. Fingers crossed that one, you have a great day at the trials and two, that everything works as we're hoping. I assume that it will, but that's uh, that sometimes is a challenge. But thank you so much for joining us, Scout, and sharing your wisdom with us. Chris, thank you so much for having me. And I just want to give you you some flowers while I have a chance to talk to you because as much as I know you're rooting for me I am equally as excited to see and to hear you because you do such an incredible job and such a great representative for us and I'm always so pleasantly surprised when I hear your broadcast of how informed and articulate and what a great insight you provide and you do that so so well and I know that you know not not everybody I, I've seen some from from other networks or, or other countries where maybe they, that person hasn't done it as well and I just really give you so much credit because you do a phenomenal job and you really you know you you're a trailblazer in that sense too so I'd love to see and I hope that because of you more more athletes with disabilities or or people with disabilities get in the space of of commentary because we don't see enough of it well i appreciate that i think it's incumbent upon all of us to to tell the story as best we can it's a way that other people can see themselves in us 
and and in the great competition. So that's I will keep plugging along. Very nice of you. Thank <laughs> you. I really appreciate it. And best of luck moving forward. For all of you, thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us for Scout's Amazing Story. Uh, please watch for her full podcast. You can go to the One Revolution page on Facebook. If you did not get to catch the whole thing, it will also come out as a regular podcast on Spotify and Apple and YouTube. So you can, you can listen or you can watch. If you like what you're seeing, please tell your friends. Please tell your friends to tune in. Please tell your friends to check out the podcast. Subscribe, follow. That would really help us as we move forward. As Scout said, we are, we are building a movement here and, and we want a whole lot of people to follow and to be a part of it. And it really is a movement of a movement of a lot of people, but a movement of one as well. So that's the hope for us. So thank you so much. And thank you, Scout, and train hard. And we'll look forward to seeing you on TV. Thanks so much for having me, Chris.